0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays, 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR.
2: We've been waiting for some kind of announcement from the CFL with regard to their plan for returning to play this year. Now, obviously, that's contingent, a lot of things, federal approval, provincial approval, everything going as it should here. But um, I mean, it was clear. I think it's been clear for a while that the May training camps, the June preseason wasn't realistic. But um, that, that there was an opportunity to get some CFL football in this year. So we got some further clarification from the league today. They are planning for a 14-game season commencing in August. Joining us for the latest is the voice of the Calgary Stampeders here on 770 CHQR, the one and only Mark Stephen. Mark, good afternoon. Thank you for making some time for us here.
1: Well, good afternoon. We've been
2: waiting a long time for this announcement, Rob, and there uh, some really good news today. Indeed it was. Now let's clarify too, first of all, maybe we can talk a bit more about the whole XFL situation later, but none of this seems contingent on any sort of agreement with the XFL. That's not really a factor in, in this announcement today, is it?
1: Nope. They're a separate entity. Whatever discussions are going on are separate from the discussions that were put in place to get the season on the field for 2021. That would have been, you know, with the players, stadium officials, provincial officials, but they're completely distinct from anything to do with the XFL.
2: Now, we, we knew for some time that, you know, that, that obviously the CFL was looking at a bunch of different scenarios and looking for some clarification from provincial governments, to the federal government. Uh, but I think it's been clear for a while that the proposed, the original, as mentioned, the, the May training camps, the June preseason, that that was a non-starter. W- when do you think that was was obvious to the CFL that they were going to push this back? Oh, I think for a while
1: now that they realized exactly what you said that the, uh, you know, the science, the vaccines weren't going to be in sufficient quantities to let them get on the field in mid May. So I think they've known that for a while. I think what they had to do, this is the way I read it, had to sit with a lot of the teams and say, look, this is our plan. This is what we're going to do. It's going to be costly. Get ready for it because no matter what happens here, teams are going to lose money. This just isn't uh, an ideal situation financially. But from a visibility viewpoint, it was essential they got back on the field this year. So I think there was a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff going on, a talking to the players, because I get it to an extent. The owners want to be smart about it. You can't spend money you don't have or don't want to. So there was a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff going on. But the specific dates in that, I'm with you. I think they knew that for a while.
2: Okay, so what we got today was this announcement of what they're calling a target date, because, as we know, things can yeah. be unpredictable. So even though we have some firm dates Nothing's guaranteed at this point, is it? Nope, nothing is guaranteed at all. August 5th, I think they're building in
1: enough of a cushion that vaccines will be far more available, that they'll have agreement from all the provinces to allow fans in some kind of a number, they didn't say what, but some kind of a number into the various stadiums, but you're right, there still has to be a lot of flexibility. I mean, let's just look uh, recently, the Calgary Flames had multiple games rescheduled, the Vancouver Canucks did as well. I mean, Flames were sitting in the dressing room an hour before the game, and they said... Take off your gear, guys. You're going home. You're not playing tonight. So uh, this is just a reality of uh, not just professional sports, but everything. But uh, I think August 5th builds in a pretty good cushion. I mean, are things going to change in the next three months? I'd sure like to hope so.
2: Yeah, I think we're all hoping for that, yeah. uh, and and I think for folks, even if they're not necessarily football fans, just yeah. you know that that sense of normalcy that you know the stamps are playing this weekend, there's the tailgate parties, or there's some fans in the stands, and hopefully we we can get to that. Uh, we shall see here. So this would be a, a, a shorter schedule. Then there's probably not. It's probably not realistic with a later start to to fit in a full season. Right. And, you know, the one thing about
1: football is playing much more than every fifth or sixth day is incredibly taxing on the body. So that's why it's really one a week or one every six days that they're going to play. So, you know, if you look at the uh, August 5th start date and then push it all the way down, the Grey Cup will be played December the 12th in Hamilton, which will be the latest date ever for a CFL game. And I think we all know the reasons why, but we'll just have to take a chance on what it'll be like in Hamilton then. So it be a condensed schedule in the sense only 14 weeks the specific format on who plays who hasn't been announced
2: yet so the point about fans in the stands that that's crucial isn't it that empty mm-hmm. stadiums that's whether they'd be prepared to go ahead and play in empty stadiums i i don't know it doesn't sound like they want to
1: no i agree and i but i think they've got to the realization and they've been working on this they feel comfortable enough with the six different provinces they work in that there's going to be some kind of access i mean president of the winnipeg blue bombers said we're not going to have a full stadium right off the bat just make as much noise as a full stadium that's what he told his fans the cfl also in their announcement today built in a contingency because ontario's the hot spot of the country Ontario houses three of the league's franchises, so they said that those teams may end up playing uh, out here in the West where things are a little better, not great, but a little better. So you may see uh, possibly a Hamilton-Ottawa game uh, in Regina. That's a possibility if they don't get things settled down in Ontario. Again, the three-month cushion, I would hope things would get under control, but they have built that contingency in just in case things continue to spiral.
2: Yeah, so a lot of uh, a lot of factors could still come into play here, but uh, that that is the goal now. Um in terms of we we mentioned at the outset this uh, the negotiations with the XFL, some kind of partnership between the two leagues and those conversations are ongoing, Mark, but any sense of you know what's in it for the CFL, what this partnership might look like and and why it's so important in the long run.
1: Well, first of all, uh, the CFL's domestic market is pretty much tapped out. I mean, they have their large bank of fans, but they aren't growing it as much as they'd like. So they're looking for different opportunities elsewhere. Uh, Whether the XFL is that or not, I don't know. Uh, The Rock is certainly a high profile spokesman for them. But I think what is going on is just ways to explore how to grow football. The CFL has made some strides in foreign football associations outside the United States. Maybe they're There's a way to work with that. I think what freaks out a lot of people is the possibility of the XFL coming in, imposing on-field changes to the Canadian game. I think that would cause a real uproar. But if they want to talk about officiating practices, purchasing equipment and things like that... uh, Go for it. I don't have a problem with that. Nothing doesn't hurt to talk. But uh, the XFL, I think, is in the backdrop right now. I don't sense there's going to be any uh, real breakthrough or any communication, at least in the very near future, if there ever is.
2: Do You ever see us get into a point where you know there's there's actual crossover games, whether they're preseason or exhibition or some kind of grand champion after yeah. <laughs> after both uh, leagues have crowned a champion? Will we ever see the Stampeders playing the, the DC Defenders at some point? <laughs> Somebody would have to radically
1: shift their season because the Mm -hmm. XFL as currently constructed is sort of a post Super Bowl till May venture. If they finish a season ever, that's what they do. The Stampeders and all other CFL teams are a May to November venture. So somebody would have to radically switch their schedule and their format. Uh, Don't know if that will happen or not. So I would say the odds of that happening are very remote. Somebody would have to completely rewrite their rule book. And you know, the CFL has some leverage here. In the sense, they're the more established of the leagues for all of their problems and issues. They've uh, stayed alive for uh, almost 100 years, whereas the XFL has been sputtering and struggling. I know they have access to a a hedge fund in New York, but uh, whether they want to spend it on this, I'm not sure.
2: All right. We'll see how that plays out uh, in the uh, months ahead. And obviously uh, we'll hopefully be looking forward to some CFL football come August. Uh, Mark, Stephen, appreciate the update here this afternoon. Thanks for making time for us.
1: Well, really nice to have some stakes in the ground that uh, everybody in the CFL community, and most importantly, the fans can start to shoot towards.
2: Absolutely. Thanks again, Mark. Mark, Stephen is the voice of the Calgary Stampeders here on 770 CHQR. And looking forward to to hearing those calls right here on these airwaves uh, come August. So, As mentioned, there are are a lot of ifs here, Uh, nothing's guaranteed, but this is how they envision things playing out. So it it is, I think, a a decent enough cushion that they built in here to start in August uh, to give us all collectively enough time to really get things moving on the right track and to be in a position. And we can look, I think, to other countries that are further ahead than us, the United States or Britain or places like Israel, where you really start to see that payoff you know from from having the vaccines rolled out and and hopefully as we get into summer and that will uh, accelerate that even further that's the hope anyway uh, the town of banff is like a lot of communities in alberta right now struggling with this uh, third wave of COVID 19 and uh, dealing with a lot of active cases uh, but, of course, Banff is uh, much more than just uh, a town. It's a, a real destination. It's a big part of uh, what Alberta has to offer in terms of great tourist destinations. And uh, certainly for folks uh, in and around Calgary, you know, it's uh, right in our backyard and it's a place that we love to visit. So given all of that, I mean, it, it adds to, I think, you know, some of the challenges that the Banff has to deal with, with, uh, you know, throngs of people coming and going constantly from the town in addition to, to those who live there. But I mean, Banff also depends on that. So uh, a lot of tough decisions to be made here in the weeks ahead as the weather continues to get warmer and a lot of people might have the mountains on their mind. So a few things to touch on here. Banff has made the decision uh, this week to to move up The uh, changes to Banff Avenue uh, to make it a pedestrian street and to give businesses more of an opportunity to put out some patios on the sidewalks. It was also a decision by uh, Banff Town Council to not participate in a rapid testing pilot project that was proposed for the town. So joining us to talk more about these and some other issues, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, the mayor of the town of Banff, Karen Sorensen, joins us here. Mayor Sorensen, great to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. Nice to speak with you. Uh, just in terms of you know what Banff is dealing with, and um, you know when we look at the the list of uh, active infections uh, based on on uh, population, I mean Banff is is right up there. How, how challenging is the situation there at the moment?
3: It's very challenging. Banff is the um, you know in the number one position. Not a great place to be in terms of number of cases per hundred thousand uh, in the entire province. Uh, yesterday we were sitting at. Uh, Sorry, the numbers uh, get uh, confusing to me. Over 130, I think it was 136 cases uh, right. yesterday, and of course we watch it daily. Uh, and with our population, it's uh, a very high percentage per hundred thousand.
2: Mm-hmm. So, in terms of what options the town has to to respond to that, or or you know to to take some steps, what what options are there at this point? Well,
3: we of course are working very closely with Alberta Health Services and with the province, and I am grateful uh, to the province and certainly to Alberta Health Services, who seem, you know, to absolutely understand our situation um, as a tourism-based community. They have been very helpful in uh, getting us testing uh, and, and upping that as necessary. We have two isolation centers in Banff right now. Of course. A number of our residents, a high percentage of our residents live in congregate housing and that is a challenge just on its own and you know, other than Jasper, no other municipality uh, has uh, regulation around staff housing as the communities in the national parks do. Uh, that is how a majority of our residents live. So in terms of getting isolation centers in place and in place quickly uh, has been very helpful so that we can get people who are affected isolating as quickly as possible. And, of course, more recently, uh, where we are all just standing by waiting for vaccines, uh, again, AHS has helped us um, in terms of getting vaccinated. Vaccinations in town, and uh, just yesterday um, has announced and has started to provide a, a, a vaccination center as as they can make it available to us.
2: There mm-hmm. was the decision on whether to move forward with this rapid testing program that uh, some mm-hmm. businesses, this uh, group Rapid Test and Trace Canada, had proposed. There was clearly some division on town council about that. Ultimately, the decision was to not move ahead with this. What, what were some of the concerns then?
3: Well, just a point of clarity, the motion was not whether to move ahead or not with that program. The motion was around, is this a kind of program that we want to uh, research further and have some discussion on uh, for potential future needs? Um, it was a little bit misrepresented in terms of what the motion actually was. So that's what the 4-3 vote was. Uh, in terms of the program that was provided... to er, um, offered to us or suggested to us by uh, this group and I do want to thank them and I particularly want to thank um, the local uh, businesses who um, were advocating for this, Uh, one business in particular right up uh, to to the presentation date. The situation we were in was had this maybe come to fruition six months ago, um, council may have made a different decision. But we were at that time certainly in a position while cases were going to under growing, we're also understanding that uh, vaccinations were coming into play. And I think most importantly on this is, again, the province is currently providing free rapid testing uh, to organizations who apply for it. And our biggest employers in the town, those that in total, you know, employ thousands of people, um, were already in the process of having these rapid tests come into their Organization from the province. So what the town has done is put the offer out there to help any business or organization apply for free rapid test kits for their employees and then we're also providing um, EMS trained firefighters to provide the necessary health oversight for the process at no cost to that organization. So we're delighted when organizations have stepped forward and are doing that proactive step of uh, rapid testing. But it wasn't something that the town really had the capacity uh, to do based on the situation we're currently in.
2: Was, was it a question of resources? Was it a question of the, the financial commitment then?
3: the financial commitment. It was an ask for $363,000. Um, and again, uh, I suppose uh, in some people's minds, that's not necessarily a lot of money uh, in an effort to uh, do this kind of testing. So I would suggest it was more than a financial decision, the decision that there is another way to do this uh, with the support of the province. One councillor spoke very eloquently at, you know, rapid testing and ongoing testing in a community, you know, is the is a provincial responsibility um and we appreciate what the province is currently doing to try and move that along um and organizing it on their end
2: Uh, another decision made this week uh, with regard to Banff Avenue, and I, I suppose on the one hand it's it's meant as as a safety measure. On on the other hand, I mean it's it's something that may, might be seen as a draw to move up the uh, schedule to to close Banff Avenue to vehicle traffic, make it a pedestrian area. So uh, that's going to happen at the end of the month, then, correct?
3: Yes, that's correct, and I want to reiterate that council and administration's first priority is health and safety, and the Mm -hmm. rationale in terms of making a decision to close Banff Avenue to vehicular traffic uh, for summer 2021, earlier than we anticipated, first and foremost, is a safety measure. And what we're doing is closing the road to cars so that the roadway can be used uh, for pedestrians, uh, allowing pedestrians to walk on the street and allowing uh line, where we are starting to see lineups at certain businesses, which cause uh, a problem with um, social distancing. And yes, an outcome of that can also is we can allow for some space for restaurants and retail to do some business outside of outside of their business and that's a benefit we're concerned obviously very concerned for our businesses and very concerned for our workforce uh who also want to stay employed so it's um it it can help both those situations but the first priority uh this year and previous last year uh is health and safety and safety and to allow for social distancing to comment on that further you know we pulled that together really quickly last summer. I think we got set up within a week or 10 days and admittedly uh, for the most part people loved it. Um, However we didn't have, now we've had experience and so it will be set up a little bit differently this year in order to assure that pedestrian flow is even better.
2: And uh, is is the mask bylaw still in effect? Are are masks required both uh, indoors and outdoors in that area?
3: Absolutely, and Council has never wavered on that. We put a what we call a temporary mask bylaw in place, and it has been in place for many, many months now, and so you do need to wear a mask indoors, as most places, um, well, most places across Canada, uh, but we also have a mask bylaw in place for the uh, downtown core. The whole length of Banff Avenue, a mask is required, and then, you know, a few of our other streets, Bear Street and some of the side streets, Caribou and Wolf Street, um, masks are required outdoors, and I, again, compliment to uh, our visitors, uh, there's a lot, There's a very high level of compliance on that.
2: And, and, and that's the thing I think people are, are maybe wondering at this point. I mean, is, is it safe to go to Banff? Are we welcome in Banff? What, what would you say to that? Well, I mean, the Premier
3: um, continues, and, and I think even yesterday noted that we encourage people to avoid non-essential travel at this time. We in Banff need to recognize that for some people this escape to a park and to fresh mountain air for physical and mental health is a pretty strong call. And we're just, all we can do right now is ask people if they're coming to please visit us safely. You know, avoid busy locations and and, and crowded times. Yeah. If you're on a street and you're, you're walking on a sidewalk and there's people close by, get out of the way, wear your masks. Um, we're doing our best with this idea uh, or this pedestrian zone coming into play in our mask bylaw. And also we have a number of ambassadors um, throughout the community, you know, explaining the regulations and trying to educate our visitors. So... As you mentioned earlier, it is a challenge, and we're certainly not asking people to stay away, but we're asking people to please, one, be very aware of the situation that Banff is in currently in terms of number of cases, and two, to if you do come, uh, please follow the regulations, please respect the community, please try and help us keep everybody safe.
2: Absolutely. We'll leave it there. Mayor Karen Sorensen, thank you for making some time for us here this afternoon. Much appreciated. Thanks, Rob. All right. All the best. Karen Sorensen is the mayor of the town of Banff and uh, commenting on the uh, situation the town is in at the moment and uh, struggling with uh, rising cases and how to respond to that. Uh, But at the same time, recognizing that, yeah, this this is still a popular destination for people. And how do you balance all of that? So that's the situation of the moment. And here's hoping uh, as we get into May and certainly into June uh, that this is much less of an issue. All right. So as mentioned earlier, there's, there's a lot of debate in Ottawa right now about whether we need some stricter measures when it comes to international travel, and particularly uh, the situations of concern in both Brazil and India at the moment. Now, perhaps we're a little late in responding to the situation in Brazil. That P1 variant that's wreaking havoc there is definitely here. Uh, it's certainly been a problem in BC more than anywhere else, but uh, we have had cases in Alberta. We have the announcement today as well that uh, Quebec has confirmed its first case of this variant uh, that is currently, apparently, wreaking havoc in India. I mean, the situation's escalated so quickly, we're still trying to get a better understanding of what's, what's driving these infection rates at the moment. But there's been some conversation about whether we need some specific rules around travel to or from India. Obviously, uh, with these situations, even going back to the outbreak of the pandemic in the first place, you know, these these cases need to get here somehow. And so it is typically international travel that allows these uh, viruses to spread from country to country. But at the same time, you know, it's maybe not obvious the line that that follows, right? Obviously, the first cases of COVID-19 were found in Wuhan, China. But it's not the case, as it turns out, uh, that the virus came in a straight line from China to Canada. So how did it get here? What can we learn from from tracing the path of this virus? Uh, so there's some new research out uh, looking at that question. In fact, finds that the uh, most common source of infections in in Canada, uh, that they came from the United States, a number of other countries, Russia, India, Italy, the UK, also on that list. So joining us to talk a bit more uh, about what we know about this and how it might be able to shape our response going forward here, we're pleased to welcome to the program this afternoon, Angela McLaughlin, a doctoral student at UBC who co-authored this new paper. Angela, thanks for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program.
3: Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me.
2: So first of all, tell us a bit more about how you go about investigating something like this. How do we know or how do we find out where Canada's initial COVID cases came from?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So there's an amazing repository of data available publicly, which is all the viral genome sequences that have been generated and shared in Canada and across the globe. And we can analyze these genetic sequences Look for differences and similarities in the sequences to build a family tree that unites all these viruses and allows us to trace back where they came from and when. So, we used uh, this family tree of uh, SARS CoV 2, the virus that causes COVID, to reconstruct where and when uh, the viruses came into Canada in the year
2: 2020. So, and, and it's interesting because obviously we're focusing a lot now on uh, Certain kind of mutations, the, the so called variants, but these, these you know genome sequences are very important in fact it 's how we started to develop vaccines in the first place, but they tell us a lot don 't we that we can track this family tree and we can get a good sense of you know where, where the virus has traveled to exactly it 's
4: essentially a, a- blueprint or fingerprint that allows you to see which viruses are most similar to each other. And it also facilitates like the naming structure in the first place. The fact that we know there are variants of concern is because they have shared mutations that we identified through their genomes.
2: Yeah. So once we start to, to gather that information and piece it all together, what does it tell us about how things unfolded and, and how the virus got to Canada in the first place?
4: So as you remember, in mid-March of 2020 is when uh, cases began to rise rapidly in Canada and the stringency of public health interventions increased a lot. So we had, you know, travel restrictions coming forth for uh, non-essential travel no no longer being allowed, for instance. And these restrictions, they did reduce introductions, but they didn't eliminate them. So we detected ongoing introductions of SARS-CoV-2 into Canada throughout 2020. Um, the majority of these introductions that led to ongoing spread were from the USA, I think uh, 54% of them. Um, and then we were also able to detect um, these sublineages, as we call them, also originating from other countries, including Russia, India, Italy, the UK, um, and uh, other countries as well. But those were the largest players which we were able to identify.
2: So how relevant then was, was China? Is China on that list?
4: China is on that list. Um, earlier on in the pandemic, there were introductions from China directly into uh, British Columbia and other provinces. Mm-hmm. However, those I was only able to identify two introductions of uh, viruses from China that led to ongoing uh, transmission. So it really wasn't China that drove. Transmission in, in Canada. You know those uh, introductions were, for the most part, uh, stymied, and it was the later introductions um, through spring and summer that drove the transmission that we're seeing
2: now. So, what are the implications of that? Because you know, I think the the impulse at the time was to to continue focusing on travel to and from China, but once you know mm-hmm. it starts to become a problem in other countries, it's it's a lot harder to take a specific approach. How do, yeah, how do we is, respond to some of these challenges now?
4: The, the answer is to respond dynamically, right? Like, there's not going to be a single transmission hotspot geography, you know. It, initially, it was China, but then Western Europe, Spain, Italy, etc., like, gradually took that flame to being the hotspots, and, you know, as a government. I think we have to really actively monitor where those hotspots are, so that we can, you know, shift our restrictions to where travel is allowed to come in and out of.
2: It's interesting because when I, I think back in um, in March of last year, and Alberta was was announcing its first cases, and you know, initially, you know, we were told that you know we detected some cases. These are all travel related. And soon enough, that that horse is out of the barn, and we've seen something similar play out with uh, some of these variants, like this B one one seven. That was the same kind of thing. We've detected some of these. These are mostly travel related, and then sooner or later, they're they're not right. They they get established in in the community. So, we we've seen this a, a couple of times at least, right? Where that's that's how it starts. But unless we're able to, you know, deal with that decisively, it's it's going to be a bigger problem, right?
4: Absolutely. And, and with the variants of concern, you know, they harbor some mutations that uh, make them a little bit more transmissible than the viruses that we were mostly seeing in 2020. So they mm-hmm. do, once they're introduced, they can readily spread through the population. And in some instances uh, with P1, for example, there's some evidence of immune evasion. So in Brazil, Um, They had already had a major burden of COVID, but then upon the emergence of P1, a lot of those people actually were able to be reinfected. So it it poses a lot of issues.
2: Yeah, it does. And, you know, there's a lot of debate about whether we should have some new travel restrictions, whether they should apply to these specific countries. I mean, you know, the the Atlantic provinces have, have shown that there's a way to deal with this. Countries like New Zealand and Australia have shown that there's there's a way to deal with this. Do, do we need those kinds of of meaningful uh, travel restriction?
4: Yeah, I think that there's an argument to be made there in terms of increasing the stringency of um international and potentially interprovincial travel. I know um, also in BC, we're being recommended not to even travel outside of our health region for anything right. but non-essential yeah. travel. I don't think it's quite the same in Alberta. Um, so, you know, recommending that people do something is different than ordering them to do it. And perhaps some level of oversight or enforcement could be improved or somehow adopting more of a New Zealand or maritime style model with mandatory 14-day quarantine um, for inter- interprovincial travel. However, having said that, um, you know, New Zealand is an island nation and the Maritimes, to some extent, exist as such as well. So, you know, is it as feasible here isn't really for me to say. That's
2: a good point, but certainly some important information. Uh, We'll leave it at that. Thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this.
4: Thank you very much.
2: All right. All the best. Uh, There you go. That is uh, Angela McLaughlin, who is a uh, doctoral student at uh, UBC, co-author of this paper. So using those genomic sequences to follow that family tree, as it were. Right. And we started with the original virus uh, in Wuhan and then it started to spread elsewhere. And as it spread, you could monitor those little changes that occurred so you could see if uh you know the virus went straight from wuhan to somewhere else or if it went from you know wuhan to to iran or to italy and to the united states and then to us you you could track those changes so it's a really interesting way of understanding how it spread and how it came to canada so at the moment though same thing with these variants we're able to trace where these variants are coming from or where they seem to first be arising Do we need some targeted restrictions uh, The deal with travel to and from these countries? Do we just need a more blanket approach across the board ensuring that anybody who's entering Canada is not causing new problems for us? Right, if somebody arrives at an airport and they test positive, you know, we should be able to contain that, right? There are rules about quarantining and that's why they exist. I think a big part of the problem though Somebody arrives in Canada, they've been out of the country for whatever reason, they go home, they quarantine, they're feeling fine. Are they really, truly quarantining from other people in the house? If you got to go away on business, you return to the country, you go home, and your spouse, your kids are all there. You're going to be around them. They're not obligated to stay home. And so what starts as uh, this case is related to travel. These cases are related to somebody who traveled. And, oh, look at that. Now, we've got some cases that have nothing to do with travel, and on and on it goes. Look, I think as we move forward, A, we don't want to be a country that other countries have to say don't go there, or we need some travel restrictions uh, because Canada's having all kinds of problems with these variants. Let's not be that country, for one. I think for two, once we get into a situation, hopefully— Uh, Where we've got things under control, I think it is going to make sense going forward to have kind of like travel bubbles. The traveling to the United States or traveling to Israel should be a lot different right now than traveling to countries where this is still a big problem. So maybe you can have different rules depending on where you're traveling to. Maybe ultimately a lot of it's going to come down to are you vaccinated? Welcome back. There's been a lot of talk about the future of wireless policy in Canada, and we're really at a bit of a crossroads here in terms of uh, the rollout of 5G and ensuring that goes smoothly and ensuring that we've got sufficient investment uh, to, to make that a reality. So when it comes to technology, when it comes to investment, when it comes to competitiveness, when it comes to consumers, there, there are a lot of questions about where Canada's headed here. So the C.D. Howe Institute uh, recently established a, a working group to, to focus on these issues, uh, to look at where Canada is headed, uh, to make recommendations about how to ensure that we're headed in the right direction. So they've got a new report out today that's looking at the uh, rollout of 5G. And it finds a few things. Uh, that the cost of spectrum in Canada is very high. In fact, four times higher almost than the international average. As a result, that's leading to lower investments in networks, higher consumer prices as a result. We've also got some uh, regulatory impediments that are getting in the way of this. Uh, So this, if we don't get this right, then, you know, this is something we're going to be paying a price for in the years ahead. So joining us uh, to talk a bit more about this report and uh, where things are at in Canada, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Len Waverman, who is co-chair of the C.D. Howe Institute's Telecommunications Policy Working Group. Uh, Leonard Waverman, thank you for joining us here. Welcome to the program.
0: Uh, Pleasure, Rob, to be with you today.
2: Well, thanks for making some time for us. So uh, in terms of what you found that's holding back the 5G rollouts, uh, high-spectrum costs, regulatory impediments, what what stands out to you then as as the biggest factors here?
0: Well, I think it's the combination of all. Uh, You know, we're, we're slow in many things in Canada, and we seem to be slow in this as well. Now, Spectrum is is, is a kind of technical word. What it means is the radio frequencies over which mobile telephone calls are made. Uh, And uh, when we talk about 5G, we mean the fifth generation of the standards over which which govern mobile phones across the world. Uh, Mm -hmm. We're now in the fourth generation, and 5G is the one where there will be, uh, it's called, also called the Internet of Things, where there are many uh, smaller antennae near your home, near your place of work as you walk on the street, which allow um, a much finer degradation, a much finer use uh, of uh, devices. You could have uh, you know, your, your home furnace will be t- t- talking to the manufacturer and saying, I think there's something wrong with, with the fan. You better come over here now. Yeah, so that's what five G enables.
2: And there's a need for for additional infrastructure to sustain that. Then, I mean, I, yeah, I think it's the, so, the nature of the technology. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So the uh, when we say the spectrum costs in Canada are high, uh, the, the original when the original mobile licenses were, were given out, people got the spectrum. So the the big players uh, got the spectrum for free. Uh, now, all countries did that. It was called a beauty contest. Now beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. And so we move to a, a, a transparent, market-based auction, where uh, bidders are anonymous, they don't see other bids. It's a very complicated process to, to find. Out, like you know, if you're going to a, to an auction for art or for furniture, uh, if the you know the the best the highest price wins. And so this was a, found to be a better way of allocating a scarce resource, which is government spectrum, to those who could use it the best. The problem is that uh, in Canada, we also took part of the spectrum in each of these generations uh, of, of mobile technology and held it back for new entrants like Freedom and others, who some have come and gone. And so we found the big players competing very aggressively for the spectrum that was available for national carriers. And that's what uh, led to very high spectrum prices, which is the set asides for entrance, and the intense competition. I would say it's really intense competition for spectrum among the, the big three, and now with Shaw, Videotron, and SaskTel uh, in their region. so the, a very intense co- competition led to these very high prices. Uh, and that means, therefore, that they have less money to spend on other things, like the investment in antennae or or in in better software upgrades for the networks. So it's a a trade-off between high spectrum. The government gets lots of money for the Treasury, which we need at this point. But at the same time, we're hand-streaming Stringing the, the, the people, every player who wants to provide telephone, mobile service, has high cost to bear.
2: It's interesting. So, I mean, as this report notes, uh, the spectrum prices in Canada are almost four times higher than the international average. If we were paying, uh, if those spectrum costs were the same as those paid by wireless carriers in Europe, wireless rates in Canada could be as much as 12% lower. So th- this has a trickle-down effect to, to the consumers in a big way. That does.
0: I mean, it's, mobile services and, and uh, landline services, broadband, everything is uh, – uh, we're an expensive country to provide telephone services and many other services as well. Because, you know, we have a thinly spread population over, you know, thousands of miles. Right. And therefore, to, to provide those services to them, it, it requires a lot of investment uh, as well especially in rural areas where, where we're in you know, a very scattered country in terms of population density.
2: Right. And that's always been, you know, one of the challenges in Canada, those, those geographical realities. Uh, and so sometimes maybe it is apples to oranges when we look at Europe or we look at, you know, countries like Japan or South Korea, but, you know, at the same time, in terms of how we're allocating spectrum, we, we could change that, couldn't we? We could. we we're,
0: we're, we're... You know, 37 other countries have already uh, uh, send, given out or, or sold their, their 5G spectrum. In Canada, we, we have uh, one one uh, band of those and two bands. Your, like your microwaves, it, it uses radio waves too. Lots of things use radio waves. And see, so these two bands, uh, one we're, uh, we're putting out in 2021. 37 countries, including the U.S., New Zealand, Luxembourg, Hungary, Brazil, Portugal, Israel, Thailand. These are not just uh, the really rich uh, countries, right? Uh, have already designated that spectrum already for use. And then in the uh, for this other spectrum, there's another bit of radio waves uh, which we could also use. Uh, we don't expect to be doing that until 2023. Uh, and that's just too slow. And, and mm-hmm. the, the government uh, announced these plans back in 2018, but hasn't updated them. And we've got to have a faster update. We've got to be more on top of digital. We, we realize in the pandemic how important communications are to us, ours, to, ours, to everybody in the world. And we've really got to be on top of this and really drive the ad agenda very quickly so that we're not left behind.
2: Absolutely. Much more at cdhow.org. Uh, Dr. Waverman, thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it. You're
0: welcome. Thanks.
2: All right. All thanks. the best. Uh, Len Waverman is uh, chair of the C.D. Howe Institute's Telecommunications Policy Working Group. He's dean of the DeGroote School of Business, McMaster University. was former dean, by the way, the Haskayne School of Business here at the University of Calgary. So as they point out, so in June of this year, when Canada's 5G auction takes place, 37 countries will have already assigned this 5G band. So it's, it's again a situation where we, we are just settling for mediocrity. But there's a price to be paid for that. I do wonder, by the way, how much of this has uh, political implications, And the decision that the government just doesn't want to seem to make about whether Huawei is going to be a part of all of this or not. The decision should be obvious, should have been obvious a long time ago. But I do wonder if that's another factor why this is going so slowly.